Open your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, uh, 126. And this uh, sermon will be uh, a Spurgeon-esque. And by that, I mean it will not be of the quality of a Spurgeon sermon, but it will be from one short passage, uh, like Spurgeon sermons often were. Psalm 119, verse 126. You're turning to the longest chapter in the Bible. So if you don't know your Bible well, split it open in the middle, you'll be in the Psalms. And then Psalm 119 is the longest uh, psalm in the Bible, longest chapter in the Bible. And it's actually an entire psalm, 22 stanzas long. There's actually one stanza for every letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And actually every stanza, the first word of each line begins with a different letter from the Hebrew alphabet. So it would be like the first letter begins A, B, C. In this case, it's Alpha, Beta, Gimel. But anyway, it it begins, and it's really a meditation through the whole alphabet, the A to Z, if you will, on the psalmist's love for God's Word. The psalmist's love for God's Word. And he, he just loves every part of God's Word. You read the psalm maybe this afternoon, you find him extolling the commandments, the precepts, the instruction, the law, the promises. He loves it all. Every single facet he receives and delights in. And this is not like some teacher. You remember being assigned poetry in middle school? Nothing more inspiring than being assigned to write a poem in middle school. And uh, make one line for every letter of the alphabet. And trying to get inspired. This guy had no such problem. No, no teacher assigned this to probably David. But there was an overwhelming, just abundance of praise for God's Word that the alphabet was not enough to contain His praise for the Word of God. And I, I just want to focus this morning on one prayer he breathed out. One prayer that was breathed out in the midst of this psalm, Psalm 119, verse 126, and it's this prayer. It's time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. It's time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Let's pray. Father, would You please come and help us as we focus on prayer this month, as we think about this prayer. Lord, we pray that You would move this congregation to be devoted to prayer even more and more. As many already are, we pray that You would give us such a heart of prayer that we wouldn't just see ourselves praying, but more importantly, You acting. Pray this in Jesus' name. I ask You to help me minister to the depths of every heart in this room. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, Jesus is speaking to His disciples about a spiritual dynamic that they would face in their ministries and that I think it's undoubted that you have maybe seen in your own life. 
In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12, he tells us that there is a relationship between lawlessness and lovelessness. That when the people around us and the culture around us are degraded into increasing lawlessness, it actually has the unfortunate effect on our souls of often creating lovelessness. And love is the central virtue of the Christian life. Love is the central motive of God's plan of salvation for us. And when lawlessness is all around us, Jesus' own diagnosis is that it can often create lovelessness in us. So he says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And that's not a, that's not a, it's not no big deal. To fail in love in the Christian life is to fail in the Christian life. To be without love is to be without Christ. If I have not love, the Apostle Paul says, I am nothing. There's absolutely nothing going on spiritually. You can know the heights of theology, and if it doesn't produce love, it is all satanic what's going on in your soul. And Jesus says, because of lawlessness out there in the world and around you believers, many, we're told, will be loveless. And then it says this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the implication is, but the one who keeps on loving will be saved. Now, you're not saved by love, but when you're saved by the free grace of God, there is one thing that will definitely happen in your soul. It's love. Jonathan Edwards, when he's looking at the revivals of his day, said, yeah, there's people doing miraculous gifts. Yeah, there's prophecy. Yeah, there's different things. But there is a mark of genuine Christianity. It's love. And uh, I think we need to be aware of this dynamic because we are so constantly exposed to lawlessness in our day. In so many places. Professing Christians in the church whose lives are dominated, not sprinkled, but dominated by lust or anger. Marriages that we just delighted to see this couple get married and then a few years later we're hearing about adultery and divorce. Everything's, everything that was good is coming unraveled. I feel like every time I open up a news website, there's a new shade of perversion. There seems to be an endless array ways to twist human sexuality and human life. Uh, honestly, we're at a point now in human history where corrupt government officials kind of feels clean cut. But there's so much beyond that. So, so many ways to twist human life. And the unintended side effect of all of this lawlessness that we might think we're keeping up with or just noticing or being attentive to is that we wind up jaded, hopeless, apathetic, cynical, overwhelmed 
self-righteous? What's wrong with these people? Or we wind up like uh, the disciples Jesus chastised, the sons of thunder. Just burn them all down! And we become loveless in the face of what ought to provoke our love. We are drained of the most important virtue Christ creates in the soul. And in the midst of that temptation for lawlessness to create lovelessness, I want to introduce you to a prayer this morning. And it's a prayer I find myself breathing out regularly in these days. It's time for you to act, O Lord, for your law has been broken. How different is that than lovelessness? Instead of unbelief, there's faith. It's time for you to act, O Lord, for your law has been broken. Instead of despondency, there's expectancy. It's time! It's time for you to act, O oh Lord. We need you to do something. We expect you to do something. Instead of just saying, ah, oh, the world's a mess, there's a concrete diagnosis of what's going on. This is lawless. This is a defiance, a rebellion against God's revealed will. I want Emmanuel to breathe this prayer with every breath, every time lawlessness hits our eyes on the news screen, in stories that are being relayed to us, there should just be this instant reflex. It's time for you to act, O Lord. For your law has been broken. And then, better than growing prayer in us is, Lord, please do something. Actually act. Success for this sermon would be not only does every member of Emmanuel begin to breathe this prayer continually on every exposure to lawlessness so that we're not jaded or cynical or callous or tearless, but we're increasingly expectant, hopeful, faith-filled, teary-eyed, and full of joy when God moves. That's the hope. Psalm 119 Verse 126 is a great prayer to pray in the midst of lawlessness. It's especially an important prayer for us to think of as we think about the great act of lawlessness in our day, legalized abortion. Legalized abortion. Abortion is always a sin. The taking of a human life in its mother's womb. But legalized abortion is a double sin because the culture and the government set their seal of approval to what is wicked and what ought to be frowned upon, in fact penalized, is instead celebrated and protected. Many of us have been horrified by the COVID numbers. Over the last few years, COVID deaths now approach 5.6 million people over the course of two years. Abortion took 42 million lives in 2018. It doesn't even compare. The fact that there aren't abortion numbers 
on the news every single night is only due to a radical, radical, radical misappropriation of priorities in our day. Babies need to be protected from scalpels far more than any adult needs to be protected from a virus. And I don't say that with any lack of sympathy for those who've lost loved ones from COVID. About 1.3 million children are killed in this country every year. In New York, more black children are killed than are born through abortion. And the absolute disingenuousness of any fight against racism that doesn't include a fight against abortion is utterly exposed by that fact. In Asia, it's been said that the most dangerous words you can ever hear are the OBGYN saying it's a girl. Because the selective pregnancies, both in Asia and as Thaddeus William, from whom many of these statistics come, reports in America and in India and throughout Asia, finding out you're having a girl is bad news. And so, so many of those girls are killed. Any fight against sexism that doesn't include a fight against abortion is a farce. Is a lie. Is not facing the facts. And in the midst of so much lawlessness, because that is what it is, the Christian church can often find itself apathetic, cynical, jaded. Didn't we hear this sermon last year? Oh right, I haven't thought about it since then. And we don't find ourselves prayerful. Thinking it's time for you to act. For your law has been broken. And I want to say to you, and it's discouraging the numbers of evangelicals who are resolved in their opposition to abortion are declining. And particularly, what is continually reported is that younger evangelicals are less likely to care about abortion than older evangelicals. And that is not a mark of how wise and mature the younger generation are. That is a mark of how unbiblically informed and how unbiblically formed are the hearts of the generation which I am responsible, at least in this church, to equip. And I want to call you to a steeled and warm-hearted conviction that it is vital that we do all in our power to end the Holocaust of our time. I remember one of the things that gripped me years ago was I remember looking at the stories and reading the stories of Nazi Germany and you just start to say to yourself, where was the church? And you find out most of them were in bed with the regime. Supporting the Nazi institutions or at least turning a blind eye to it. May it never be said. May it never be said of us. Where was their voice? in the midst of such wickedness. I want to give you three reasons to pray Psalm 126, sorry, verse Psalm 119, verse 126, repeatedly, continually, like breath, until God answers. The first is because abortion is an act of lawlessness. That's the first reason I'm going to give you 
to pray Psalm 119, verse 126, because abortion is an act of lawlessness. The second I will give you is because the hearts of mature saints are touched by lawlessness. The hearts of mature saints are touched by lawlessness. And the third I'll give you is this, because our God is a God who acts. Our God is a God who acts. So we ought to pray Psalm 119, verse 126. It's time for the Lord to act for your law has been broken because abortion is a breaking of God's law. It is an act of lawlessness. Now we need to talk a little bit about the law of God. And uh, evangelicals are often so busy being excited about being saved from the law that we never spend enough time cultivating a delight in the law. So that is evangelical salvation. This is what the Bible teaches. You are condemned by God's law. God's moral standards condemn you. You haven't lived up to what God expects of a human being. You have failed to do what God has commanded. You have broken His law. And because of that, you are under the consequences and the condemnation of being a lawbreaker. And you can be freed from that by Jesus Christ dying on the cross to save you from your lawbreaking by taking your death penalty. That's the Gospel. If you repent and believe in Jesus and trust the One who died on the cross to save you from your lawbreaking, you can be freed from the death penalty, from the curse, from the consequences, from the condemnation of all lawbreaking. That's it. That's glorious. It's wonderful. But sometimes we never even take a look in the rearview mirror and stop and think, wait a second. That law I got saved from, what was it like? It was beautiful. The law is beautiful. The reason it's so hell-worthy that we be sentenced to hell for law-breaking is because of how beautiful the law is. The reason a person could come under any conviction of sin that they have failed is because they realize, I failed to actually be something beautiful. To live up to something wonderful. And you need to understand that not only is the law beautiful, but the law of God is not arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. God's not up in heaven going, ah, okay, so we got trees over here and mountains, and what should we do for rules? I like don't murder. It's not like that. It's not that the law is arbitrary. It's not an arbitrary set of commands that God just sort of willy-nilly thought, let's throw ten together, put our ten best together, throw them down to Israel, see what they think, and we'll go from there. The law is not arbitrary. It's not capricious. The law is rooted and grounded in the character of God. It's woven into the very fabric of nature. And it's expressed most fully at the cross of Jesus Christ. The law is rooted in the character of God. God is life. God is holy love. And the law, what He commands, is all an expression of what He values. And so it's beautiful because it flows right out of Him. And it's not just sort of coming out of nowhere, sort of being dumped on a planet willy-nilly. No, the law that He gives, especially in the Ten Commandments, 
it, it accords with, it lines up with, it fits perfectly together, hand in glove, with the way nature works, with the way the natural order was made. We were made with parents who were over us and way older than us and almost in every case wiser than us. I mean, I know it's hard to believe, but they generally do more than know more than you at two, three, four years old. It's always amazing to be a parent where you're like, you know, I've been on the planet like a lot longer than you. <laughs> and I haven't been perfect. But I'm just sure that my discernment has elevated above that of a three-year-old. <laughs> Amen. And so the law comes as honor your father and your mother. It's the fifth commandment. Nature weaves truths into our lives. The law of God just accords with them perfectly. Ten Commandments don't drop out of heaven out of nowhere. They line right up with nature. We value our lives. The law says, don't murder. Our souls were meant for God. The law says, don't put any idols in front of me. Our souls were meant to be satisfied with God's perfect ordering of our every detailed lives. The law says, don't covet. We don't want, we want a precious wife to ourselves. The law says, don't go covet some other man's wife. It takes the natural order of God, the way God has woven the world, the way He's woven His perfect character into the fabric of the world, and then it codifies it, if you will in the Ten Commandments that line right up with nature. And all of that, all of those Ten Commandments, they are the perfect expression of love. Jesus told us, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. Every command God ever gave was an expression of Love. Sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, I really don't want to be too like law-bound. I want to be more loving. That's not a possibility. You can't be more loving than the law. Because the law was all an expression of God's love. So when Jesus comes and says, a new law I give you, he doesn't mean, man, that Ten Commandments thing, that was cool for a couple thousand years, but let's kick it into high gear and do a Jesus thing. No, Jesus, everything He does is in accord with those Ten Commandments. He was born under them and obeyed them perfectly. And when He says a new law I give you, what He means is my whole life exemplified the love the law was going for the whole time. Greater love has no man than this. That he lay down his life for his friends. The whole law's going for love, Jesus said. Let me just show it to you at the nth degree. Let me turn the volume up to 10. I mean, if the law is like a matchstick, this is like, as one preacher put it, this is the son. I'm going to die for you. Abortion violates the law in every conceivable way. It violates the law woven into the very fabric of nature. A woman's body 
is a home. Every single one of us has lived in a womb. We were homed there through our knitting months. None of us would be alive had we not nested there for a season. A woman's breasts bring the food that every child needs once they come into the world. And in abortion, that womb becomes an execution chamber where a mother who every fabric of her being was designed to bring forth this life turns against this life. A father whose strong shoulders were meant to protect the weak stands aside while the doctor does the work of the devil. He stands aside just like Adam did in the garden and leaves his wife or girlfriend vulnerable, maybe even pressuring her to be in that situation. The doctor who takes an ancient oath, do no harm, does murderous harm. The government that in every culture is to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil, protects those who do evil, and chastises those who speak too loudly for the good. God's law written in nature is inverted, exploded, distorted, and demented in abortion. The law of Moses is violated in the Ten Commandments. It's violated in abortion. It says it as plain as day, you shall not kill. That's, the, that's not a complicated law. There aren't like subsections under that. That's not like something in the legal code. Some of you got, some of you, have, you know, you own a home, you've read part of your HOA, you read that, you, I have no idea what that means. I don't know what that means. It's not one of those. You shall not kill. Someone says, ah, but, 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 but it, doesn't, it doesn't talk a lot about abortion in the Bible, so we're not really sure what it means about abortion. But you know, the Bible doesn't talk about, a lot about not killing grandpa. Right? You got any special verses? Thou shalt not kill grandpa. Nothing in the Bible about that. Why? Because once you say you shall not kill, it covers all life. It's a blanket statement meant to cover everything. At two weeks in the womb. Two weeks in the womb. You're beginning to see, lot, in, you're beginning to see evidence of individual life. Brain waves begin to form. At two weeks, three weeks, you get a heartbeat. Four weeks, you have individual blood circulation. Before most people know they're pregnant, you've got a little child who will increasingly grow up to be their own, well, they are from that moment on, their own human being. Not only is science abundantly plain on what's happening in the womb, but the Bible is very plain as well. Psalm 139, verse 13, David says this. Listen to these words. Listen to the implications of these words. For you formed my inward parts. Whose inward parts? David's inward parts. He doesn't say, you formed a fetus's inward parts and I'm glad to have them now. No, Dave, it was me. It was David in the womb. 
You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. But in abortion, and in America, there's countless Davids, countless poets, countless artists, countless mothers and fathers, teachers, doctors, lawyers, fry cooks, you name it. Countless individuals that have never been allowed to live. Because there was a disobedience to this command. You will not kill. And the law of Christ was disobeyed in abortion. The law of Christ says, me for you. In the abortion, the mother says, you for me. I got goals. I got plans. I got other things I got to do. I can't do this right now. So you're going to have to go so I can continue on with what I'm doing. In the law of Christ, Jesus says, I'm going to have my life stop so you can be redeemed. In every conceivable way, the law of God is violated in the lawlessness of abortion. Now, someone will come along and say, well, but I mean, there's disabled kids and disabled kids are you know, not able to have a very good life. And so, you know, maybe it'd be better if, if, they, if they were killed, terminated. You know, there's not a single, this fact from Thaddeus William, there's not a single disability organization that agrees with that. There aren't any disabled people currently on the planet in any kind of advocacy group saying, we wish someone had taken us out. In fact, there were three people uh, in the late 60s one without arms, one without legs, one without arms and legs, who wrote a letter to the London paper and said, we just want you to know we are liking our lives. And we don't want anyone to do us that favor. Thank you very much. C. Everett Koop, the Surgeon General under the Reagan administration, wrote, there is no direct correlation between happiness and disability. He says, in fact, some of the happiest people I've treated are disabled. And bearing burdens I've never, I don't know that I could bear. And in fact, uh, suicide rates among the disabled are not higher than among those who are fully able. Interesting, isn't it? So the idea that you're going to have mercy on someone by killing them, well, first of all, it goes against God's law. And second of all, just isn't right. Well, what about, you know, there's a lot of moms are poor. They don't have a lot of money. They've already got too many kids. You know, you're going you're to make their lives hard uh, by having another kid. Maybe you should just end, end, just end a pregnancy, make things, take a little pressure off. Again, Thaddeus Williams, after a 14-year study, this is fascinating, sad, 81% of women who've had abortions deal with mental health issues in their lives. 81%. So you think, now there's someone in poverty. Let's make poverty a little easier by helping them do something that will likely result in mental health issues. Now, I don't know about you, but I listen to NPR all the time. And on NPR, there's two topics of conversation. One is critical theory and the other is mental health. It's all the time. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and basically, the world according to NPR is everybody is having a mental health crisis now all the time. Just everybody seems to have, everything's being categorized in terms of mental health. Mental health all the time. And I do not deny that there are people with deep psychosis, delusions, 
hallucinations. That is real. That is tragic. But how do we account for the fact that everyone seems to be having mental health issues in our day? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? We saw just a few weeks ago that where people are actively practicing homosexuality, that results in a rise in mental health issues. Transgender folks have a rise in mental health issues. Those who've had abortions, 81% face mental health issues. Sounds to me like mental health issues is being used to describe with what the Bible used, with what Christians used to call the consequences of sin. A defiled conscience. A fear of death. An evil conscience. Alienated from God. Unresolvable anxiety. We've got a world that is just ripe for the hearing of the Gospel. Ripe for it. So much sin is so prevalent. Just ripe for it. Is there a word of forgiveness? Is there a word that could heal me? And the culture is just, don't worry, it's just mental health issues. You never get rid of them. Just got to learn how to, just, just mental health issues. And this big blanket statement is keeping people from hearing this beautiful message. Though you've sinned in any number of ways, Jesus Christ has died to save sinners. So, if you didn't hear it on the news, let me make sure you hear it right now. There is a Savior from sin. There is someone who has come. You may have chosen to kill your baby. You may have chosen to pervert your body. You may have chosen to be greedy with your money. You may have chosen to be full of lust. You may have chosen to be sinful. You may have chosen any of that. There is one who's chosen to come and get you. There is one who's come and chosen to redeem you. There is one who's come and chosen to rescue you. There is one who has come and died on the cross for the, what you ought to have died for. And He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will receive you. He will welcome you in. He will call you son. He will call you daughter. He will call you forgiven. He will call you beloved. He will call you by name and He will come back and get you and take you to be with Himself forever and ever. Amen. We ought to pray. It's time for you to act because they have broken your law. Because abortion really is the breaking of God's law. We also ought to pray it's time for you to act because they've broken your law because the hearts of God's saints are touched by lawlessness. The hearts of God's saints are touched by lawlessness. I've got about 15 verses staring at me and I've got time for about one of them. Well, maybe just go down in the passage. Psalm 119, verse 127. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. When was the last time you said, I like God's commandments more than I like what's in my bank account? I like hearing what God commands more than I like anything in my 401k. I have a favorite possession at home, and it's nothing compared to the commandments of God. There's this love for the commandments of God. Not because I'm just into legalistic rules. They aren't legalistic rules. They flow out of the character of God. They, they, they line up with what's woven in the nature. They're, they're teaching us how to preserve life and care for life. They're good. We love them. And when they are disregarded, well, listen to this response. 
to them being regarded. Look at verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep Your law. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep Your law. Now here, here's the thing. Here's, here's, I'm going to just tell you this, Emmanuel. I find for the most part you've been, you've been catechized by conservative talk radio more than by the Bible. Because I think what we would generally need to say is, my mouth makes insightful comments about all this godless nonsense. Not my eyes shed streams of tears. Because people do not keep your law. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The idea of drinking liberal tears is as satanic and as idea as you can come across in the world. It's demonic. It is demonic to hear the arguments of ungodlessness and I say, I drink them like it's breakfast. I just demolish them. Self-righteous garbage. It's devilish. And it keeps us from being a weeping people. And we are a useless people if we are not a weeping people. If all we can say to a sinful world is, you're stupid! We have nothing to say. What we have to say is, there is our Redeemer. Jesus, God's own Son. That's what we have to say. We have to say, there is one who came and died on a cross for you. He shed His own blood for your soul. Are your arguments stupid? In fact, they are stupid. And so are everything I ever thought without Jesus too. And it's time for God to act in your life. Because you have broken His law. Emmanuel, we need to give ourselves to reading the Bible, pondering the Bible, praying the Bible, thinking the Bible, putting the Bible podcast on instead of the podcast that makes you jaded, cynical, apathetic, angry, and putting the Bible on until you're tender, sweet, tearful, broken, longing, prayerful, looking for God to move. That's what we need. That's what we need. That's, that's the maturity I want to lead us to. That's the maturity I want myself. That's what we need. Is a great movement of God's Holy Spirit so that we say, man, when I read my Bible, I know how everybody else is wrong. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And that's not legal. It's loving. I wish people would keep your law because it would help their lives. Last point. Our God is a God of acts. He moves. He acts. 
this is not a defeatist prayer. This is not, it's time for you to act, O oh Lord, for your law has been broken. This is kind of expected. Now, I'm going to tell you something about the guy in Psalm 119. If you don't believe me, you go read Psm 119. It's real insightful. This is most my most insightful comment. Yeah, you ready for it? The guy in Psalm 119 knew the Bible. Okay, he, he knew it, he'd read it before. You don't write a 22 stanza poem about how much you love the Bible and it wind up being good unless you actually love the Bible. Here's one thing you're going to learn if you read your Bible a lot. When man is at his most sinful, God loves to move. Let me ask you this. Has the current cultural moment we're living in increased your sense that God may be up to something? I'll maybe ask it again. Has the current cultural moment we're living in increased your sense, man, this might get good? When things were totally depraved in the days of Noah, there was a rainstorm and a ship. Salvation and judgment. Great sin, great action. When the people of Israel were under slavery, they're, 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 they're trying to kill their babies and they're heaping up all kinds of slavery and, and burdens onto the slaves in Israel. And, and what, are the, what, what goes on? God says, go get me Moses. I'm going to set these people free. i got ten plagues and a parted sea, and these people are out of here. In the early church, when they faced their first bout of persecution, and they got arrested and told, don't you be preaching that anymore. Enough of that preaching in Jesus' name. Peter and the other apostles went back to the believers and said, well, I guess that's enough of that. I mean, it was a good run while we had it. No, it says they gathered together with their friends and they said, oh Lord, stretch out your hands and cause us to be bold while you do miracles in our midst. And God said, no, 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 no. I'm not really into that. No, He poured out His Spirit on them afresh. They preached with boldness and miracles blew up everywhere and people were getting saved. So here we are. A great hour of lawlessness. Something like 60 million dead from the Holocaust of abortion. Garden variety sins have become normal. Things are so lawless. New shade of perversion. Every day of the week, every news story, like, what? What? What is going on? It's time. I love what the old uh, Puritan commentator on this passage says. He paraphrases this verse as it's high time for you to act. It's high time for you to act. For your law has been broken. Emmanuel, the law of God has been broken in every generation. That's not distinct, but what may be distinct in our day and age is that hypocrisy doesn't even pay any tribute to virtue anymore. In the past, people would at least act like you shouldn't sleep before you sleep together before you're married. Maybe act like you're supposed to be one man with one woman. Act like you're supposed to be righteous. We're done with that. Now we giggle about eight-year-olds with porn on their cell phones. It's all just normal. It's a time of great lawlessness. Which means it ought to be a time of great expectancy. 
And we should be going to God like breath. Regularly. Day and night. In your prayer closet. In your prayer room. In your GCG. Wherever you're with people praying. And you should be knocking on heaven's door. Lord, it's time. It's time for you to act. Because your law has been broken. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and we ask You, make this our prayer. Make this our prayer, Lord. As lawlessness just inundates us, and honestly, one of the things that can frustrate us is that we don't all have the same take on lawlessness. We don't all see how to respond exactly the same way. It's so confusing. And that can be, make us loveless too. Lord, in the midst of that, would You make us agreed, united, that we should pray. It's time for You to act. For Your law has been broken. And Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just clearly see a movement of prayer in our midst, in our souls. But we pray, Lord God, that You might do a distinct activity of both salvation and judgment in our day. Lord, we pray that You might show us Your glory in this day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.